Welcome to Redefiners, a podcast designed for daring leaders who are changing what it means to lead in today's increasingly complex world. I'm Nanas Motoshami, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds Associates. And I'm Clark Murphy, Chief Executive Officer. Nanas and I have spent our careers exploring what works and what's next in the realm of leadership. In each episode, we ask our guests deep and provocative questions about how they've challenged the norms and how they've redefined their organizations and ultimately themselves as leaders. Also, you can answer this one question. How are you redefining your leadership? Perhaps the boldest question yet. Conversations that matter. Inspiration for us all, whether you're kicking off your career or crafting your legacy. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. We are in for a real treat today because we are speaking with an entertainment industry icon and an award-winning producer, Deborah Martin-Chase. Deborah's had an illustrious career in Hollywood. She's broken through many glass ceilings along her journey. While her name may not be immediately familiar to all of you, you've all likely watched many of her productions over the years. They include most recently The Equalizer with Queen Latifah, Harriet, The Preacher's Wife, and my personal favorite, The Princess Diaries. In my opinion, what makes this lady truly unique is that Deborah is the only African-American female producer to produce a film that's grossed over $100 million ever. She's been named one of the top 10 most bankable African-American movie producers in Hollywood, and for good reason. Her films have grossed in excess of half a billion dollars at the box office. Now, Clark, you're lucky enough to have actually worked with her for a few years. Yeah, Deborah and I have been on the board of the New York City Ballet together and worked on a bunch of different projects, succession around the artistic leadership of the company. And a couple of years ago, Deborah said, we need to focus on diversity on the stage long before it probably was as prevalent as it should be. Deborah's helped us navigate through that. And uh, it's been a huge learning experience for me, and I think for the board overall. So I've had a lot of fun working with her. I didn't know she was so famous until <laughs> I started reading all the details. But we're pumped to have Deborah join us on Redefiners. And Deborah, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Deborah, we'd like to start right at the beginning of your career and understand some of the early influencers. I have to say, I was quite surprised uh, to find out that you're, in fact, a Harvard Law School graduate and that you started life as a corporate lawyer. Yes. Help us understand, how do you go from sitting in a corporate office for eight to 10 hours a day? Not eight to 10. To being <laughs> such a successful. Was it long? Okay. <laughs> 10 to 12 to 14 hours a day to becoming such a successful producer. Tell us your secrets. Well, listen, it started with my dad. My dad was the biggest film and television buff that I knew. So I grew up in a household where we watched movies and we talked about movies and television at the dinner table. And pretty early on, I realized the power of the imagery on the big and little screen, how it shaped opinions and visions and, and perpetuated stereotypes or could break stereotypes. I grew up, I didn't see many people who looked like me or felt like me. Um, honestly, the, the black people I did see on screen were not people I identified with. And so it was a dream to even think about making film and television. But I knew that if I could, I could have an impact on the world. But I didn't know how to get there. I didn't know anybody in the business. And so I did the safe thing and went to law school. And 
practiced law for a few years, big corporations, big law firms. And I was a really good lawyer, but I was not happy. And I knew that it was not my calling. And so I finally just got to the point. I said, if not now, never. And I don't want to wake up saying, what if, woulda, coulda, shoulda, whatever. So I just kind of went for it. But what does that mean? I mean, did did you literally pack your bags and go to Hollywood? How was the intro into it? I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly in the business. And I didn't really know how the business worked. So I spent a year while I was still working as a lawyer, just talking to anybody who would talk to me about, you know, how things worked. And, and, and then I went to seminars and I started reading the variety and Hollywood reporter every day and reading books and really just getting an understanding of how things worked. And I realized that, you know, I wanted to come up with stories and, and, and really help shape the, the narrative. So that was either a studio or network executive or outside a producer. And so, so then I had a goal to, to work towards. So you get the job, you're in Hollywood. There aren't many black women in, in any of those jobs. Who helped you along the way? Did you have mentors? How did you get through the first five years? Frank Price, who was the chairman at Columbia Pictures, he was one of the last of the old-fashioned studio bosses. I was at a program luncheon, and I was seated next to him. And we really hit it off. You know, he just was interested in me. And and he had a book that he was developing that was set at Harvard. And towards the end of lunch, he said, well, you know, if you ever have a chance to read the book, I would be interested to hear your thoughts. And that was a Thursday at lunchtime. So that weekend, I locked myself in my apartment. I read the book twice. I called him first thing Monday morning. And I was like, oh, you know, I had a chance to read the book over the weekend. I have some thoughts. He invited me up. I shared my thoughts. He liked what I had to say. We continued talking about things. And a couple of months later, he brought me on as his executive assistant. And that was my big break. That's the job that usually went to the white guys, right? And so I went with him to all of his meetings. I read scripts for him. We sat in his office every night and I got to ask whatever questions I wanted about, well, why did you, why are you publicizing this in this way? Or, you know, why didn't you buy that? And he really wanted me to learn. Deborah, what I love about your story is that at the heart of it, it has a message which I often try to convey to my mentees, people who are earlier on in their career, and that, um, you know, at the start of your career, it is about almost being a sponge, learning as much as you can, Mm -hmm. not being frustrated by the fact that you can't have much influence early on. It's kind of fit in to get in, pay your dues, and then the influence would come. You've obviously been a key mentor Mm -hmm. to others, and it's great names like (laughs) Anne Hathaway and Blake Lively. What are some of the key lessons that you've learned from either the mentor or mentee relationships, and and how important is that? For my mentees, you know, I pick people who I believe are special. And that, and by special, I mean a combination of talent, of determination, and also who are just good people, you know, who have a sense of themselves and right and wrong and, and want to do good in the world. And preparation is key. You know, I, this is going to sound really weird, but I, I read this a long time ago in the New York Times. It was a Bruce Willis quote of all things, but it's that, you know, 
You have to be ready when opportunity knocks. You know, you have to stay ready. You can't just say, oh, when opportunity comes, I'll gear up. You have to do your homework. You have to be mentally prepared and emotionally as well as actually have the skills. Because when the opportunity knocks, that door is going to crack if you're lucky. And you have to be ready to put your foot and jump through there and go for it. Because it may not come again. You don't know. Let's draw on that opportunities. So you had to have obstacles. You had to have challenges. Not everyone is a good person as you've helped others. Talk us through a couple of those. And how'd you push that door open from the crack? It's tough business. And I just think part of it is I made up my mind that I was going to succeed. Now, I, I know on the one hand, you know, even in retrospect, that sounds a little naive, but, but it's true. You have to make up your mind that within your own, you know, moral parameters, you are willing to do work harder, you know, be better and not give up to succeed. And I made that commitment to myself. I felt a mission and that helped to motivate and empower me. Lots of obstacles. I mean, I was there in the days where, you know, when I walked in the room, I would be the only black woman, black person, you know, in most cases, the only woman. And people would assume I was the assistant. You know, they would just be, can you, you know, get the coffee? And, and I'd be like, no, you know, but, and then every now and then, as I would say, I would have to drop the H bomb. I mean, it's where, you know, Harvard Law School comes in handy because, I would, you know, be, and I just have to say, well, you know, when I was at Harvard Law School, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, I, you know, I'd get a second look. I had learned this before, but what became even more useful in Hollywood, when you walk in a room and you're the only one, you stand out and you can use that to your advantage, right? So uh, people, when I, the first time I open my mouth, people are going to listen because they're curious. So you have to be smart and strategic. And once people see, oh, you know what? She's like, you know, different or, you know, not what I expected, then they will listen to you. And so, you know, I knew, again, I knew enough coming from my, my, my legal background where, listen, the law firms were better than Hollywood. Surprisingly, I mean, there were, there's usually a black partner or there certainly were some, some black associates or a few women partners. There was some consciousness of, you know, the beginnings of consciousness of, of diversity and it being the, you know, the right thing to do. There was none of that in Hollywood. It was survival. It was survival of the fittest. But I knew enough to know that it wasn't going to be an equal playing field and I shouldn't waste my energy on fretting about that and just accept the reality of the situation, use what I could to my advantage and just you know, work really hard and be the best that I could be to, to make it happen. Did it ever become really bad? Were there ever any really dark moments when you thought, what am I doing? Yes, I didn't love law, but at least, as you said, I had a comfortable life. Did you ever come close to giving up? Honestly, it was more like about six years ago where I really was fed up. It, we were going through, we'd gone through a long stretch where people were just not interested in movies or television about women or about people of color. Obviously, I've done other things, but these are the stories that I'm most passionate about. And it was my 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 calling because then I found myself just throwing stuff up against the wall. And so things weren't sticking because I didn't really, 
believe in them 100%. And I said, I said, well, you know, maybe this is my time. I mean, not everybody's meant to be in Hollywood forever. And maybe this is the universe saying to me, you know, you've had a good run and you should maybe think about doing something else. We'll be right back. But first, we're going to hear from Mina Paul, an associate with Russell Reynolds Associates in Dubai. It has been a big year for DEI. In all the conversation I have with CEOs, there is a feeling that we now face a critical opportunity for change. These leaders now want to move on DEI and they want to move fast. But is there a shortcut to creating a more inclusive and diverse workplace? Can you really fast track success? To find answers, we spoke with a group of leaders who've made rapid progress on DEI. They've transformed their cultures in just five years, half the time it usually takes. So what can we learn from these leaders? Well, first, take time to understand the status quo. Lay the groundwork and get buy-in before trying to catalyze change. Employee surveys and focus groups can really help here. Second, recognize that DNI needs leadership support and organizational support. Our fast-track leaders didn't just include CHROs, CEOs, and CDOs on their DNI advisory panel. They also included functional heads and business unit heads. Third, recognize that accountability is key to making intentions a reality. So to summarize, set goals, track progress, and embed DNI metrics in performance management and bonuses. This is how you fast track DNI progress and build a fairer, more equal workplace for everyone. Find out more at restaurantnodes.com slash insights. And now back to our conversation with Deborah Martin Chase. The business had changed. Everybody who had a stake in my success was long gone. And so I said, you know, by definition, if everything's the same for that long, something's wrong. So I took a step back and I just kind of opened myself up to new ideas, to understanding where the business was, where it might be going, renewing old relationships thinking about things I could do outside of the business. And honestly, a turning point for me, I was very good friends with Vernon Jordan, who sadly we we lost recently. And I would go once or twice a year and just go sit in the office or we'd go have lunch. And I'd known him since I was 18 years old. And he just was, you know, a, a mentor, a, a life mentor. And so... I went to Vernon and I was like pouring my heart out of, oh, it's just not working and I'm not happy and I'm not getting things done. And he listened to me and then he said, you know what? You're too old to start over. He said, you paid all these dues. You have the relationships. You have a good reputation. You have the experience. Figure out how to make it work. And it really was that kind of, you know, slap in the face of, all right, get over yourself. And yes, the, you you know, what are you going to start over at this point in your life? So. So you had to reinvent. I mean, uh, I love the line, when everything is the same for that long, something's wrong. Yeah. Get over it and move on. So, so what was the move on? What'd you do? I realized at one point that for me as a producer, it was about finding great stories and stories that I believed in and then figuring out what was the best platform for them. So I was, I did a fair amount of TV before it was fashionable, but I said, 
the growth is television. And that was, you know, when streaming was just starting and you could just kind of see that whereas the studios were all beginning to move towards just doing the big tentpole movies, which is, it's not my thing. And so rather than keep, I kept trying to, you know, do more princess diaries and people wasn't happening, you know, at the studio. So it's like, okay, look, look at the changing landscape, figure out where you fit in. So I made this big shift to TV, not to give up on movies, but basically to change the emphasis of my business. And then equally, if not more important, the business change. Because finally, after years of of me and other people pounding on the on the door, on, on the heads or whatever, Hollywood finally realized that diversity, both from a racial and a gender perspective, was good business. And once they realized that, the doors went wide open. Because before it was like, oh, you can't tell, if you tell people it's the right thing to do, they're like, okay, I understand that. But at the end of the day, this is a business and we want to make money. But finally, it was proven that diversity is good business. And it really started in television with Grey's Anatomy. And then Scandal was a real turning point because the television networks did not believe that a show, an hour-long drama starring a Black female lead could be successful. But you had Shonda coming off of Grey's Anatomy. The head of drama at ABC was a, a very, you know, wonderful black woman, Channing Dungy. And scandal, Olivia Pope is loosely based upon a black publicist named Judy Smith. And so they were like, we'll get killed if we cast a white woman in a, in a character that's based on a black woman. So they crossed their fingers, cast Carrie Washington, held their breath, and lo and behold, it's a smash success. That was followed by... Viola Davis and How to Get Away with Murder. And then you had Empire on Fox, which had an all, basically all black cast take it over the top and have the, you know, like the biggest numbers in the, in the first season in over a decade. And then on the feature side, you had a couple of breakthroughs, which culminated with Black Panther, mm-hmm. right? You know, billion yep. dollars, cultural phenomenon. You had, um, hidden figures. You know, based on a true story, three black women, my Harriet, which was very successful commercially and critically. But because hidden figures had worked, you know, focus features was like, oh, we know there's a market for this now. So let's go. And they, they couldn't have been more supportive with Harriet. So now it's just, it's an exciting, for me, finally, it's an exciting time to be a producer because people are, interested in the stories and also the other thing is with streaming and premium cable if you can really deliver to a niche market you're good and that helps but different stories be told and we hear that uh you've just named so many great productions but yet at the same time whether it's the oscars or in the media today are we gaining ground in Hollywood for women directors and producers and black directors and producers? Are we gaining ground? Is there progress happening? Yes, progress is happening because progress progress is definitely happening. And it's a combination of, again, wanting these different stories to be told and finally understanding that people who have some connection with the stories are the best people to, to tell them. 
And just women and people of color having been given opportunities and having really delivered. You want to support them and you want them to win because failure sets the whole thing back. So on Equalizer, for instance, our showrunners are an amazing couple named Terry Miller and Andrew Marlowe. Our number two is a black man who's fantastic, Joe Wilson. We have other younger writers in the writer's room, and we're trying to build people up in our crew just so that we have a pipeline. So maybe, you know, they can't run the department now, but maybe in two years with experience, they can, you know, come forward and take on more responsibility or go somewhere else and use that responsibility. What you say about pipeline actually we see in a completely different context in the context of the board, whether it's African-Americans, um, other ethnic minorities, women, unfortunately, are still underrepresented, despite actually the demand. Um, and part of the problem is the pipeline. Given your experience on boards, what advice would you have for diverse executives who are looking to get on boards? And equally, what advice would you have for boards who want to have greater representation? I know for you guys as a search firm, when you have a board opening, I, I'm sure it's very rare that you say, oh, maybe a Hollywood producer would be a good fit <laughs> in this spot. And so, <laughs> I, you know, so and I and I and so I understand that it for me, it was going to be relationships. It was going to be people knowing who I am and what I can do and and that, you know, I, I bring how my experiences can translate into helping a board and a corporation, et cetera. So in fact, my first board, BNG Foods, came about because the chairman of the board, Stephen Sherrill, was also the chairman of the board of the Second Stage Theater. And so over the course of, I've been on that board seven, eight years, he worked with me, he understood me and what I was capable of and my perspective. And so they were looking to, frankly, add more diversity to the board um, and also to have someone with a different perspective mm -hmm. on life. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, my business is about selling, creating things that I think people want to buy. In my case, it's it's a piece of TV or a movie. In their case, it's it's food products. So my advice is to just, it's like anything else, is to put yourself out there. Do you think about, as you sit on boards, the changing customer expectations, the changing needs of consumers? I mean, that's the, the focus I think that's pretty insightful is what do people want to see, hear, buy, think about? And that's what I've enjoyed when we've worked together is you bring that kind of insight. There's a reason why if you turn, when you turn on the TV and look at the commercials today, that most of the commercials are either biracial, the families are gay or multicultural. It's very rare to see a heterosexual white couple anymore on television. And I think part of it is because people now demand to see themselves, right? You know, it used to be if you, if it was all white, everybody would kind of put the, extrapolate themselves into the picture. That's not how people operate anymore. They want to see people that they can identify with. And conversely, I think that white audiences are now able to transcend race and not have that be a block. You've got to understand that change in the cultural psyche. 
and create products and market them and present them in a way that reflects that. Even like with New York City Ballet and what and we've come a long way in terms have, of just our internal culture, but it's a recognition that we've got a different audience that we've got to appeal to. And that means we have to look different and we have to present ourselves differently. And we have to reach out to people and get our product out, whether it's virtually, you know, digitally, in the community in a way that we didn't have to 20 years ago. Deborah, you have this unique role in producing that you're working with big egos, famous people. As corporate leaders, we're always trying to manage strong egos to try and put a group of people going in the same direction to have better results. How do you work as a producer with the famous, the strong-willed, the well-known to to get everyone going in the same direction for a great product? That is, and as a producer, that to me is my main job. It's where one of the, the ways in which my legal skills come into play because all of that is negotiation, right? All of that is, you know, making everybody feel heard and respected, but then convincing them that this vision, this central vision is one that it is in everybody's best interest to adhere to and advance. So, Deborah, we like to end each podcast with some uh, rapid fire questions. Um, this is where we're going to ask you a series of questions and we want you to reply with whatever comes top of mind. Okay. And we promise you they won't be too hard. <laughs> okay. Okay. What books are you reading now? I just brought it with me because it's Ticker. It's by Mimi Schwartz. And it is the, the true story about the race to create the artificial heart at the Houston Medical Center. Future movie, seeing and hearing it here first. (laughs) (laughs) Deborah, you're clearly a very talented lady and many of your talents are are clear to us. But what's your hidden talent? What is the one thing you can do brilliantly that no one knows about? Oh, God. You know what? I don't even know that I have a hidden talent. (laughs) I think it's all out there on the table. Whatever. I'm great on the dance floor. I'm a great dancer. I... You know, start the party, close the party down. Uh, Let's do that. There you go. Well, you dance with productions, too. Uh, If knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? Keep moving forward. And I think it took me a while to learn that. When you're younger, sometimes you get, you know, you get depressed about things or, you know, you can hold on to things longer than you should. And I think it's just keep moving forward with purpose. That is very wise advice. If we were to make a movie about you, which actor or actress would you choose to play you? Carrie Washington comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say Carrie Washington or Halle Berry. Nice. Nice. Okay. When was the last time you were wrong? Oh my God. I'm wrong a lot. I I will... Um, when's the last time I was really wrong? Shoot. I honestly, I'm not coming up with a, with a, with a good answer for that one. Not because I'm not wrong. There you go. It's okay. <laughs> and that, our favorite one that we always end with, uh, Deborah, what's been your biggest, uh, redefining moment? I think it's what we talked about in terms of, I really was one foot out the door ready to quit and, you know, decided, no, I was going to go 
do my legacy phase, Mm. that I needed to have a legacy phase of my career before it was all over, or I would regret that. Deborah, you've um, shown with your examples um, that to be successful in the entertainment industry, it's not just about commercial success. It's really important to have that passion and purpose. And it's clearly something that's been with you throughout um, your career, whether it's movies or TV programs. What are the messages that you would want to get out? My primary message is that each of us have the power to control our destiny. There are things that happen that are out of your control. But, you know, that being said, we can be whoever we want to be, you know, with hard work, determination, vision. We can be whoever we want to be. And I think it's really important to continue to remind people of that and to and to get that message to, to young people. When you point to the Princess Diaries, my theme that runs through most of my work is that you have the power to change your life, to determine what your life will be. Um, you know, I, I, when I talk about the Princess Diaries, it, it, I, I, it's in some ways the same as Harriet. You know, a, an ordinary person faced with extraordinary circumstances who finds the courage within themselves to change their life and in doing so change the world. I love your message around controlling your destiny. Um, uh, Maybe not quite the princess of Genovia for me, but uh, I really believe in that. (laughs) (laughs) But since you know the movie so well, you know it's that moment where she says, where she's about to quit. Lily tells her, you know, you, but you have the power to like change the world. And I think... You know, now more than ever with the world is so complicated and and people are feeling hopeless and helpless and it's so hard to know how to navigate through the mess of it all, not to mention, you know, coming out of this pandemic. I think that reinforcing that for people is super important and particularly for women and people of color who are often the most disenfranchised. Deborah, Nanaj and I cannot thank you enough for being here. Setting people up for success, and you talk about creating pipelines for the future. You say people demand to see themselves, and you're helping people see themselves. You're redefining for us a lot that is important. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Huge thanks. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiners. For more dynamic insights from leaders from across industries and around the world, Listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com, find us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter at RA on Leadership. See you next time.